afternoon And the beetle bugs are zooming And the tulip trees are blooming And there's not another human in view But us two Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 3rd, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books and the writer of a new play called God Shows Up that just began previews at the Playroom on West 46th Street on Friday, last Friday night. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. So how is the uh, baby the baby being birthed? Not bad, not bad at all. Um, it's so funny, though. You know, you write lines that you think are hilarious, and nobody mm-hmm. laughs. And you write lines that you think are mediocre, and it tears the house down. I mean, <laughs> we've done three performances, and uh, I've been surprised. But uh, people seem to like it, and they seem to respond. So, uh, who knows? Um, uh, uh, talking to the producer, who um, is actually mentioning the next step. So, who knows? Uh, anything could happen. But so far, I'm pretty happy with uh, what's going on. Um, so again, we'll see. Great, congratulations! So, how long is it running for? Uh, just till the twenty-first. Okay. Uh, so it's funny because um, we had a drama desk nominators meeting yesterday. Uh, I'm one of seven uh, nominators, and um, I said to the group, "I'm very glad we're not running twenty-one performances <laughs> because then you'd have to make a decision, you know, on yeah. uh, <laughs> whether this is good, bad, or indifferent." And uh, so, so far, I'm off the hook. Uh, we'll see if what happens if it moves. All right. Excellent. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, last Sunday when uh, we recorded, we had not yet seen Rent Live, which was on Fox on Sunday evening. But that moment has since passed us, and we have a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks talking about Rent Live. Uh, but I wanted to hear from the both of you what you thought about this uh, production. So, um, Peter, uh, before we started, you mentioned that uh, your schedule was very full, and you did only see the first half of it. And you uh, intend on? Do you intend on going back to see the second half of it, or is it? Or, or, or are you? Um, are you going to be able to? Well, sure, I'm going to be able to. And um, <clears throat> I didn't see it because uh, we were actually rehearsing that night and uh, I missed it. So anyway, I get out of the theater and I'm seeing all these negative comments on Facebook. My God, uh, <laughs> nobody likes it at all. And um, so I thought maybe that's part of my reaction because I thought it was terrific, frankly. Um, and I know that uh, I do not come to this as a rent head. I will say that Rent is a, is a musical that I like each and every song. And I also think we should mention that um, Jonathan Larson, in his short life, was able to come up with distinctive vamps. We always talk about the fact that John Kander um, has distinctive vamps. Uh, for those who don't know what a vamp is, that's uh, the introduction to a song. Da, 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 da. You know, John Kander is uh, famous for those. But really, um, the Would You Like My Candle song, the um, Santa Fe song, um, so many of them have wonderful vamps. So um, so while I've never been a Rent head, I certainly have admired Rent, enjoyed Rent. I've seen it about maybe six times. And uh, so I was 
surprised to hear the reaction from everybody about um, not liking it at all. But again, these people come from it from a place of devotion. And um, I can see where that might um, have some problems with them, just as shows I know inside out. Uh, if I see something that's uh, a little off, it drives me crazy as well. So I will say that. But I love the arena staging uh, with people around on all four sides. If you've been to arena stage in Washington, D.C., um, it's that type of staging. And the cinematography, I thought, was terrific. You know, the cameras going here, there, and everywhere. I like that quite a bit. So, um, I, I, but really what, what struck me most is how so little sympathy has been given to this actor who broke his ankle the night before. What a terrible thing. What a, what a heartbreak. You know, I, that, that is so terrible. And people, you know, have been complaining about the fact that as a result, it wasn't live. Why is that important that it wasn't live? I mean, <laughs> isn't the play the thing? I mean, why must it be live? If you saw, I want to see the show. <clears throat> I don't care if I'm seeing it live or not. I mean, yes. Is it better to see it live? Is it more exciting to see it live? Of course. But it's not as if at the last moment they said, you know, the hell with them. We're not going to do it live. I mean, you know, why bother? We have a tape. Let's just run that. No, there was a good reason why it wasn't live and a, a, a damn good reason. So, uh, but I wish there were more sympathy for the actor. And I, I have heard very little about that. Um, it seemed to be the people were so self-centered um, that um, there's, there's, I didn't get the, the show I expected. Yeah, the, the kid didn't get the broken ankle he expected either. So I thought that was um, really something. Uh, it's, it's always been interesting to me that um, the rent generation um, goes crazy for Angel, and that was certainly true of the audience here, too. Um, you know, and so it hasn't changed. You know, the TV, uh, the transvestite on TV got as much uh, response as I ever heard in the theater. So I, I thought that was really something. Um, the enthusiasm, a lot of people have complained about that. Oh, the audience was just going crazy. Whenever I saw Rent on Broadway, the audience went crazy. So what's the difference? I mean, it, it seemed to be a real blast from the past hearing that um, all over again. You know, um, I watched it with uh, subtitles. I always love to watch with subtitles, not because I can't hear what's going on, but I love to see the edits that are made in subtitles. The um, And certainly what was interesting to me here was um, how far we've come from the pajama game. Now, let me explain. In the movie of the pajama game, <laughs> uh, yes, nobody expected me to bring up the pajama game in conjunction with rent. But anyway, in the movie The Pajama Game, it's very interesting to me that um, in the song I'm Not At All In Love, the lyrics were censored from the Broadway production. All you got to do is be polite to him and they have you spending the night with him was the lyric on Broadway. And um, it, I, I think in the movie it's something like um, all you have to do is work with him and they have you go and berserk for him. Correct. Because they, they didn't, is, is that it? Yeah, okay. So as a result, you know, they don't want to establish that um, people might even think about spending the night together. And yet in the uh, song There Once Was a Man, more than a dope fiend loves his dope. I mean, it's, it's interesting that that stayed in 1957, that they didn't worry about um, dope, but they worried about sex. Well, here was just the um, opposite because um, there was uh, this lyric marijuana that's mentioned, um, and that was kept. Um, and uh, you bet your ass they had three little lines uh, for you bet your ass. So um, so it's changed in that way. So I thought that was kind of interesting. People have also complained that, you know, why they have an understudy? Well, all right, that's that's a good point. But on the other hand, wow, can you imagine the pressure on an understudy? Um, now, granted, the ratings weren't good, but we're still talking millions. And 
you know, can you imagine the pressure on an understudy to be on nationwide TV um, with close-ups and all that kind of stuff? I mean, I think it would be murderously hard. I wouldn't expect an understudy to go on TV with so little preparation, and I think that was really quite bad. But I enjoyed it. I didn't. I heard a lot of complaints about the voices. Um, they didn't sound bad to me, and uh, I imagine I, I've really lost the confidence of a lot of listeners who are hearing this now because, again, I didn't hear anybody who responded to it remotely the way I did. And uh, as soon as I get a chance, I'm going back for act two. So, Michael, what what were your thoughts? Gosh, I I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, the problem with it not being live is that that was the whole point of it. And whether or not you agree with it, and I don't, uh, I mean, to me, I've never understood it. I, I don't understand what the big deal is. I, I don't think there's any real difference in the experience uh, in having it live or live on tape. With uh, to me, the main, the main, most important thing is the audience reaction. Uh, that's that's going to give it a completely different feel. But whether the audience reaction is is live because we're watching it at the same time they are, or whether it's on tape, I I don't personally think it makes that much of a difference. But regardless, the whole point of these is that's how they market them. So if they're going to market them and not have an understudy, to me, that is absolutely idiotic. I I just can't understand it. What would they have done if that fellow, that poor guy, had uh, hurt his ankle or whatever it was before the, the, the final rehearsal uh, rather than at it, d- during the last 15 minutes of it they would they have had to cancel the show or postpone it either of which would have cost in- incredible amounts of money I, I it's just it seems to me like unbelievably irresponsible and I cannot cannot believe that they did that and uh, talk about perfect storm um, for you know for for them, and also, it's this is not the first of these that has had has been plagued by really bad luck. Remember, remember how um, rent? Uh, I'm sorry, how Greece, um, which was also done in uh, on the West Coast, and they thought they were safe from rain because it was done on the West Coast, and they and then they had to at the last minute do all of these scenes in, in indoors in a soundstage uh, because it was raining uh, and. So, you know, it would be nice if they had a little more luck, but also there are things that, uh, you know, that are producers and directors responsibility. And so I can't believe they they didn't have an understudy. I I don't agree with Peter about the I mean, I agree certainly that there would have been a tremendous amount of pressure. But if people were well rehearsed, if you had a few understudies shadowing. Uh, these actors during all of the rehearsals and then watching all of the rehearsals that they weren't shadowing, I think that you would have, you know, if you pick the right people who, you know, had a lot of grit to them and uh, and a lot of ambition, I think they would have come over brilliantly as uh, I know it's not the same thing because it's not TV, but we recently discussed Kate Marilli in the prom. In the prom. But I, I really am dealing with the close-up factor, and I think the, you'd see some nervousness. Anyway, go on. Well, I mean that uh, you know I can't. That obviously depends on the individual. I just mean sure. if if, sure. if they were thoroughly rehearsed, uh, you know, which is a big if. But I think it would have been worth it because then they look what happened. Uh, this this really unfortunate situation. Um, I uh, ironically I only saw the last half of 
the telecast. Ah, Peter saw the first half and I saw the, the last half. Uh, so I saw Angel do very little. I unfortunately oh, sure. yeah. heard uh, from se- and read from several people that uh, that was one of the most unfortunate pieces of casting because he just couldn't sing it properly. Uh, so I can't speak to that, but I'm just remarking on what everyone said. Uh, did you not feel that, Peter? Well, I'll, uh, <laughs> um, I, um, no, I, 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 I was neither here nor there. It was neither a brilliant performance nor a terrible one. Um, I thought it was right in the middle. But uh, what's interesting, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, in the first act, which you do see, is a tremendous kiss that made that one um, on the mm. prom on uh, Thanksgiving Day uh, in the parade look like a peck on the cheek. So, uh, so that was something, too. And uh, <laughs> it's interesting. We're talking about the Fox network. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. That struck me. But but just for the record also, and I'm not sure if uh, if uh, to to address what you said earlier about the pajama game, uh, there was uh, some quote unquote censor- censorship in this. Yeah. They, they did rewrite some lyrics and changed a few. Yes, I, I, I did notice uh, the ch- you know, like fucking weird. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, And uh, what else did I want to say? I I thought as I was watching the second act, actually, I caught it from La Vie Boheme on. So the end of the first act and then the rest of it. Um, I thought that it veered wildly uh, from really excellent in terms of the performances and the staging and everything else to to really quite poor. Uh, But some of it really was great. And I think overall, I, I do agree about the camera work and uh, the staging. I, I think that that added to it. I thought I have to disagree partly on the audience response, because to me, for example, the song uh, You Are What You Own, I think the the audience ruined that number. And to me, uh, to, to have people screaming throughout that number and to have I think there was an incidence of stage diving uh, where, where uh, I think the guy who played Mark uh, was being, you know, carried aloft by the by the audience at one point. Did, did they not? Are they not listening to the lyrics of that song? <laughs> it's 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 a very very negative song about there, what is. There's a rumor that uh, the stage dive is when he broke his ankle. Uh, we haven't uh, been able to confirm that, uh, but the uh, when, when he during the what you own segment is. Oh. Is is the episode where he was running up and down the stage and diving into the crowds and things like that? Is is when that injury occurred? That's the that's the discussion. I haven't confirmed that. I haven't seen that in any uh, confirmed reports. But that's what folks who uh, were around the ep- uh, around the live uh, performance that was the, the the dress rehearsal or the tape rehearsal said. Well, I hadn't heard that. Thank you. Uh, but so both both. Both performers were stage diving in that number. Uh, I think both of them were. They were. Yeah. They, they definitely went out into the house and were directly uh, <laughs> corresponding with the audience, making the audience part of the show. Which, as right. you point out, has nothing to do with the lyrics of what is actually happening <laughs> at that moment. No, no, it really, really, really doesn't. So I was surprised at them. I was surprised that Michael Greif would allow that in that number. Uh, there are other numbers where you could do that. Um, but, I, you know, it's funny. When uh, when uh, I read no explanation of exactly how uh, Brennan Hunt 
broke his ankle or whatever. I thought, well, is that because it happened in some embarrassing way? <laughs> and oh. I, I read, I read some crazy rumor that he did it that he did it shooting hoops during a break which it will i you know i oh that we we, we <laughs> i mean that could be completely false and i uh-huh, thought so. uh-huh. but but i thought well maybe it was something like that because if not why not just tell us you know um so maybe we'll find out eventually i'm sure somebody was there and, and knows um so I had very mixed feelings about it. I thought some of the casting was excellent and some not so great. Um, I did like some of the changes. I thought – I personally thought that the uh, reconception of Seasons of Love was really, really smart and very effective. Um, I know that a lot of people hated it because they're so wedded to the traditional staging of the the cast just coming out at the start of Act 2 and standing there face front in, in a line and singing it. But I thought reconceiving it as something that is sung in the AIDS support group, I thought that was very, very moving. And I, I like the way that they worked uh, kill a settle into it. So I thought that was a high point for me. Uh, people have very, very strong feelings about rent, uh, uh, you yeah. know, for obvious reasons. And yeah. so, uh, it, it is interesting to read, um, such wildly differing reactions from so many people. Um, Michael, uh, did you only see the second half? Cause that's when you got home and turned on the TV. Basically, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was I forget what I was doing earlier that <laughs> that that evening, uh-huh. but I would like to catch up with the rest of it just out of curiosity. Sure. Well, it is uh, streaming off of the off the Fox website. I don't know how for how long they'll keep it up and and you could stream it directly from there. But uh, you can go to uh, Fox dot com slash rent and uh, watch it uh, streaming live uh, streaming the streaming. Uh, and I'm not sure if they made any edits to it or fixed some of the issues. I I had some pretty negative f- feelings about it, but not um, from the the side of the actors or things like that. I, I wasn't thrilled with Valentina who played Angel. Mm. Um, uh, you know, that was a real downside. Was that I feel that Angel is the heart of the show and Valentina. Uh, in Hollywood terms, prints perfectly Angel, looks exactly as we have come to think of what Angel looks like, right, but right. could not sing the songs, did not have the voice to sing it, at least in the part that aired. Uh, people swear up, down, and sideways that Valentina has a beautiful voice, and uh, but that plays into the negative part of what uh, I thought of in the in this live uh, broadcast version of Rent was was that there was a lot of producerial errors and that the sound mix was terrible. And mm-hmm. it didn't really get going for me until uh, Take Me or Leave Me, the Joanne, uh, the Joanne number, uh, I felt was uh, started to come together. And I thought Act 2 was really, really solid. Um, so, Peter, I think that you have uh, to look forward to Act 2 if you haven't seen Act 2 because oh. it, it, it's very good. And... Um, and can except you Im- for except for you are what you own. <laughs> you are, and you are what you own is just a, a bad uh, directorial choice. But it, yes. but I mean, um, it all comes together from uh, a standpoint of uh, I think the 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 the, the camera um, cinematography got better, and it was less less all over the place, although it is sort of frantic at times. Um, but the sound is much better, and they tell the story, and everybody settles in. And then can you imagine if, you know, 
um, 20, maybe 30 years after the original Hello, Dolly! played on stage, they did a live Hello, Dolly! And at the very end, the original Hello, Dolly! cast came out at the end and sang <laughs> <laughs> with the uh, with the TV cast. I mean, I, I thought that was a great touch with, with Rent, and it was good to see Idina and Tay uh, and uh, Jesse and Adam and... Uh, all of them uh, back on that stage uh, singing at least one song that we've, we've come to know them for. Um, uh, Although that was another oddity to me because unless I missed it, I mean, yes, Adina had a solo line and they focused in on her for that. And Jesse L. Martin, uh, same thing. But I, I never saw anything like a close-up of uh, – most of the others, and certainly not Adam and Anthony. I, oh, no, I, they, yeah, they, they did. Well, um, Adam was <laughs> – because it was 90% pre – 95% pre-tapes except for the final scene where right. they brought the guy back who broke his ankle and he sat in sort of a – he sat – on a table or in a wheelchair or something like that while doing the final scene. He was immobile. So uh, Adam went back and hung out with him because he was the, the the Roger characters all hung out and all the other cast members paired up with their equivalents. Jesse paired up with, um, I forget who it was that uh, Jesse paired up with, but everybody paired up with their counterparts from the character standpoint. So, uh, they and they did show close-ups of of near I, I think everybody, including uh, you know Kiala Settle was a great showcase for her. Uh, as far okay, as okay, well I, I guess I just missed it then. Yeah, but uh, surely it's um, it, it was an ambitious undertaking, but I think that they learned learned a lot f- uh, from it, and we're gonna. We're going to have the uh, Hair Live coming up soon, so uh, that's coming up in May. I hope these things don't get canceled because the ratings are getting terrible. But um, <clears throat> but anyway, you know, I, I, I just surprised myself because um, I keep meticulous statistics on my theater going. I didn't realize I'd seen Rent 11 times in seven different productions. That really surprised me. Mm. And But it's been a while. So it, it, it was like – revisiting an old friend and um i was reminded of uh, how wonderful the score is and how much i like it and uh one thing that i've never forgiven i mean yes of course i have the two disc set but you may know that there was a rent highlights album and i've never forgiven them not putting santa fe on that album because i really think that's a, a terrific song so um <clears throat> so i was really delighted to be reacquainted with it because i i haven't thought about it for a while so uh so i'm, I'm I, I can't say the words "thank you, Fox." I just can't. So I, <laughs> I can't do it's that. A, it's a different group. It's a different it organization is. than the Fox Fox News. Fox they, News. They're physically separate corporations now. So, Guilt uh, by association. Yeah, that's true. It is. <laughs> so uh, before we move on, I'll have one last question. Um, uh, Matt Temanini and Jennifer McHugh uh, put out a new episode of Some Like a Pop where they focused on the good, the bad, the emotional of Rent uh, Live-ish. Uh, and they talked about um, the casting. Maybe, maybe it's not the casting, but the presentation of some of these actors – they said that these actors were too good looking and didn't look like struggling artists uh, and that 
do you think that that plays into to anything in uh, Rent Live? You know, they these people are too good looking or uh, or don't look uh, worn uh, for the life of uh, struggling artists that are living in tenements, basically. It didn't strike me that that was a problem. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> All right. So uh, Rent Live on Fox, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I'll also link to uh, Matt and Jennifer's uh, Some Like It Pop episode talking about uh, Rent Live. And uh, that's it. So let's move forward into another review of the morning. Michael, you got down to the 92nd Y where you camped out in this. Were you stuck there because it was so cold this week that you decided not to leave for three days? Or uh, I was part of a tent city like in Rent. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So you got to 92nd Street Y. You saw uh, uh, the Maury Yeston show, the Bob Mackey discussion, Santino Fontana and Rogers and Hart. So tell us about these things. Yeah, it really was. It just so happened that I was there three nights in a row. Um, And that is the 92nd Street Y is nowhere near where I live. But I was very, very happy to make the trip because these were really three great events. One was uh, Lyrics and Lyricists Evening on Sunday, the 27th. And this program was titled We'll Have Manhattan, Rogers and Hart in New York. And it was created by and featuring Santino Fontana, who will soon be starring in Tootsie, the musical on Broadway. Uh, Gina Rattan, director, Andy Einhorn, music director and piano, David Chase, arranger and orchestrator. Uh, And a really good cast, including Lily Cooper, who will be co-starring in Tootsie with Santino. Uh, Jessica Fontana. Santino's wife, Anne Harada, who our listeners know for many things, including Avenue Q. And this um, uh, other guy who was basically unknown to me, his name is Vishal Vaidya. Vaidya, V-A-I-D-Y-A. And his only Broadway credit is Groundhog Day. Uh, But he... Um, this was a wonderful opportunity for him because he has a beautiful voice that we got to hear on several lovely Rodgers and Hart songs. And this was a, a you know, a, a very well done, very well written review uh, written by Santino. Uh, and uh, just, a, you know, I guess a typical songwriter review with with uh, biographical nuggets about Rodgers and Hart and wonderful um, uh, projections and slides that which uh tends to be a hallmark of these lyrics and lyricist shows and uh really good choices um some major famous songs not heard including (laughs) bewitched bothered and bewildered uh but others included such as my funny valentine and uh let's see i'll just give you an idea of some of the songs thou swell uh of course manhattan uh the song Manhattan, which uh, I've always loved because, first of all, it's a great song with wonderful, uh-huh. very clever lyrics. But also it's uh, one of the few songs I know of that mentions <laughs> Staten Island. I knew you were going you to knew you were gonna, you know, I was say that. <laughs> you know, in Jimmy, the musical Jimmy, they, they mention uh, all five boroughs, but they refer to it as Richmond. Richmond um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> yes. And that. That uh, I mean, there were lots of things wrong with Jimmy, but I think that was one of them because nobody ever calls it that. And they'll also, I think it's only because it was two syllables. Oh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see. Glad to be unhappy. Um, uh, obscure song called Disgustingly Rich. 
uh, from higher and higher, which I think also gave us uh, – it never entered my mind. Uh, so uh, – oh, and uh, you know, On Your Toes, Lover, Wait Till You See Her, one of the most beautiful Rodgers and Hart songs ever. So that was a really wonderful, great evening, and I was glad I was there. Uh, the next night was uh, a presentation uh, called A Masterclass with Maury Yeston. Uh, I'm not sure I'm aware of this, but – or I was aware of this previously, but The Y has a musical theater development lab of their own. Uh, Maury Yeston is very famous for his work with the um, BMI Lemon Angle Musical Theater Workshop for decades, and I certainly knew that he did that. Uh, I didn't know there was a separate one at the Y, and I'm not – I wasn't 100 percent clear if, if – um, if all of the shows that they work on there are for young audiences, uh, everything we heard on this night was uh, – they were shows for young audiences. And um, and I have to say the quality of the presentations was just outstanding. I mean it really – as I said to Maury afterwards when I spoke with him, it really, really does give you hope <laughs> for musical theater because the least of these uh, – let's see. Th there was one song – uh, each from five new musicals in development for young audiences. One is called, I'll give you the titles of the shows, uh, Ant and Grasshopper, which uh, may sound like Frog and Toad. And I think uh. I guess similar theme, general theme. Uh, one is called From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil uh. E. Frankweiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on a, a, a famous book. A lot of them were based on, on books. Uh, one called Sugar Rush, uh, Molly, the Manatee, and Hereville. And uh, so Maury, you know, uh, these songs were presented by the songwriters and sometimes with uh, artists that they brought along. And then uh, Maury would critique them. And it was absolutely incredible how he could hone in on, uh, you know, sometimes little tiny details um, and just give a suggestion, um, like a very simple suggestion that was then incorporated and made all the difference in the world. Uh, he he really just seemed like a brilliant, brilliant teacher. I, it was the first time I'd ever had a chance to experience him doing that uh, directly. I mean, I'd heard about it for decades for his work with um, with the other workshop, but this is the first time I got to see it. And that was a real privilege. Um, and then uh, just as a prelude to that, before they did the presentations, there were two excerpts from a ballet uh, that Maury has written that has already been produced about Tom Sawyer. And um, it was done with recorded music. Uh, and I couldn't tell if it was a synthesized or an actual full orchestra playing it. But either way, it sounded just gorgeous. I mean, really beautiful melodies uh, for this ballet. So I'm going to have to See if I can ask him if the whole thing has been recorded uh, or if uh, maybe I'll see if there are excerpts of it on YouTube or whatever, because I, I, I think it really it really just sounds just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and not everyone can write for ballet. It's a, it takes a special ta talent. So I'm going to have to check that out. Um, and then finally, on Tuesday, the 29th, Bob Mackey, the great uh, costume designer and clothing designer, uh, gave a talk. Well, uh, it was interviewed uh, at the Y by Fern Malice, uh, who is a, a fashion maven herself. And that was really, really great. I, uh, I know 
Bob a little bit and have spoken with him and I'm familiar with a lot of his work, but he's done so much, so much in his career on television and in film and, and also on Broadway. Uh, his, he is not focused primarily on Broadway in his career, but he certainly has some credits there. And one that I actually had completely forgotten about that came up during this discussion was that he designed the costumes for Platinum. Uh-huh. which was a 1978 musical, 33 performances, loosely based on Sunset Boulevard, um, and later retitled Sunset uh, in a reworked version that was done uh, off-Broadway, I guess. But the Broadway version was with Alexis Smith. So, um, uh, so among other things, Bob got to design for Alexis Smith in Platinum. And uh, it really uh, – he, he's just so charming and funny and – he, you know, he, he he spoke very frankly about people like Carol Burnett and Cher and, and what it was like to work with them. And he was very, very honest, uh, which you don't always get in a situation like that. He, you know, he not everything he said w- about every one he worked with and every experience he had, not everything he said was positive. But whenever he said anything negative, it sounded like he was just being honest and not being bitter and just telling it like it was. So it was it was a really, really excellent. And I'm so glad that I went uh, to all of these three events at the Y. Uh, I I urge you to check their calendar. They they constantly have theater related events. And uh, just like uh, I think we discussed Town Hall recently, it's an example of a place that you can go and have a really great theater-related experience, almost always at a, a fraction of the cost of what you would pay for a Broadway ticket. So, uh, yeah, so it's very cost-effective in that in that sense. And I just just look at their calendar, and you you'll you'll be very 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 impressed. It's been a long time since I've thought of platinum, believe me. Uh, and uh, what I re- what I remember most about platinum was taking <clears throat> this avant-garde type of playwright uh, who um, was very off off Broadway in sensibility and experimental and what have you. And he looked at me before the show began and said, "You know, I love bad musicals. <laughs> I don't." I don't necessarily like good ones, but I love bad ones. And so he had a good time that night. Um, Michael, uh, at the risk of correcting you, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe Sunset came first and then Platinum and then Sunset. You're not wrong that Sunset uh, appeared off Broadway um, after Platinum, but I think it was first Sunset at Buffalo, if memory serves, and I may be all wet on this. But um, there is an album, the, the off-Broadway Sunset, that Tammy Grimes is in, and you haven't lived until you've heard the song 1941 great party song you know if you have a bunch of friends over you must play 1941 and you'll laugh till the cows come home so um anyway a few notes on that um i think th- thank you uh to, to correct you it's 1945 unless they change thank you thank you <laughs> it's been a long time it's been a long time but yes i'm sorry no i didn't know anything about pre-broadway uh you said buffalo yeah, I think so. Studio Arena. That rings a bell to me. And oh, again, if this turns out to be all wrong, don't be surprised. Uh, but the te- the Tammy Grimes one is was was post Broadway, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Michael, did I did I miss uh, you mentioning? It? Did Bob Mackey talk about what it's like to have his life portrayed on Broadway right now? 
in the Share Show? Oh, yes, yes. He talked about Michael Barres. Oh, and that's another thing he mentioned. I, uh, I, and I forgot to, to research it. Uh, I guess out of town or in the workshop, Bob Mackey was being played by somebody else. Not Michael Barres, and uh, that person apparently did not work out, and so he that person went away. Uh, so yeah, he talked about that, and uh, he talked about Michael and how you know how he really likes uh, that he's playing him, and uh, you know he said he felt a little uncomfortable, obviously, with seeing himself portrayed on stage in general, but uh, but I guess he got used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, that's uh, Michael's Three Days Up at 92nd Street Y. Uh, we'll have links to that stuff in the show notes. Peter, while Michael was doing that, you were down at Primary Stages at uh, Cherry Lane Theater seeing God Said This. So tell us about God Said This. Well, believe me, when I heard a play called God Said This was um, <laughs> coming up, uh, and here I am with a play called God Shows Up, that's my play, I, of course, was very nervous, thinking, uh-oh, the same thing, um, here's what's happening. Not remotely, not remotely. Uh, in my play, God literally shows up. Um, <clears throat> but in God Said This, uh, God doesn't remotely show up. In fact, um, these people occasionally might even seem damned by God because they have a very difficult situation. First off, the mother is dying of cancer. Virtually everything takes place in a ho- I'm sorry, a hospital um, room where um, the mother, uh, played by an actress simply known as Akko, A-K-O, because um, she's Asian, um, is is certainly having a tough time. And there are some very painful scenes watching her suffer. That does happen in this play. But the point of the whole play is when, when your mother is dying or your wife is dying, everybody shows up at the, the hospital. Everybody feels that he or she has to put in an appearance or everybody <clears throat> somebody wants to be there. Um, it's one or the other. And so what we have is her husband who definitely wants to be there. He's very devoted to her. And that's really nice to see because these are elderly people now. They're um, in their 70s and um, I would guess. And they have two daughters. And one of them, Sophie, is is devoted to the family as well. She's a religious fundamentalist. She doesn't hit you over the head with it. Um, she's very content to be her own person with this. And, you know, she spends no time trying to convert herself sister, whom she doesn't quite like that much because the sister leads a wilder life, um, uh, a bit on the promiscuous side. So um, the sister, by the way, whose name is Hero. And uh, there I was naively thinking, because I hadn't looked at the playbill beforehand, that uh, indeed it was the same spelling as uh, in um, Much Ado About Nothing. No, no, it's H-I-R-O, because, again, the mother is Asian, and so uh, they gave this daughter a, a, a more Asian name, while Sophie had a more American name. So uh, so it's been a long time since Hero has dealt with her father, whom she doesn't like. Uh, he wishes that she did, but uh, she has a lot of hard feelings for him, uh, some based on the fact that he's was a terrible alcoholic for a long time. He's not any – well, of course, he, he's still an alcoholic, but uh, he's been uh, clean and sober for a while now. So bringing these disparate types into the room, of course, is going to cause a great deal of conflict, even though everybody's trying to get along uh, tremendously well. The play is very diffuse. Every now and then you're wondering, mm, where is it going? What's, uh, why are we seeing this scene now? Why is this a scene we must see now? 
By the way, that's part of the greatest advice anybody can give any playwright when, when a playwright is writing. Why is this the scene we must see now? And so many of them seem to be um, off kilter, that they don't remotely seem to be um, terribly important uh, to uh, what's happening. So uh, one wonders what Leia Nanako Winkler, um, <clears throat> who seems to have a, a mixed race background as well, if those names mean anything, uh, is trying to get at. There's an automobile accident, you know, out of the blue. I mean, so little things like that. Plays ideally should have a moment of alignment where you learn very early on uh, what's happening. Uh, sometimes it's later, but it's satisfying. For example, I always use the example of the odd couple where um, when uh, Oscar is late coming home, um, when uh, Felix has made a dinner and you couldn't call and tell me you were going to be late and that's the moment of alignment when you say oh my god what he's really talking about is these two guys essentially have a marriage because women notoriously say over and over and over again you couldn't call and tell me that well anyway the moment of alignment in this play comes extraordinarily late and finally you say oh 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 oh, I see that's what she was getting at so, so that's uh, a bit of a problem with the play but I'll tell you the writing when uh, the writing itself is solid and, and, and tremendously moving at times. And I really do feel that um, the cast is top notch. Um, I especially like Jay Patterson as the uh, husband. I thought he was magnificently good. He's a very good actor. I've seen him a million times and he never disappoints. But I think this is one of his best performances. So I really liked him tremendously. Uh, so Tommy Blair uh, played Hero and uh, she was marvelous at being acidic uh, when she wanted to be. And um, she certainly wanted to be most of the time. Uh, Emma Kikui uh, was the one who um, played Sophie and I thought she was marvelous too, at being subdued. You know, she had a lot of opinions, God knows, but um, all things considered, it was a case where she uh, went for the subdued. And of course, you know, we, we certainly um, have to thank the director uh, for doing that because, uh, <laughs> you know, we, those are the ones who uh, really make the decisions. So um, I thought that uh, that was quite wonderful as well. So um, a, a bit of a, not a, not a must-see. No, no. Um, if if you already have tickets and you're there, I don't think you'll you'll be sorry you did. It's always tough to see a play that deals with bad health and uh, death and dying. Needless to say, one question I had was, um, okay, how did um, this married couple get together in the first place? And I assumed it was uh, that um, he met her in Vietnam and took her over. And I was thinking, you know, he's too young for World War II, but um, I figured that's what it was. And you know, there's even an allusion to that, the fact that um, we might assume that that's what happened. Not at all. Not at all. And uh, we do find out how they met, and it's a very charming scene. So uh, so a lot of assets, some liabilities, uh, with God said this. All right. So that is playing through February 15th uh, down at the Cherry Lane on Commerce Street. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, last week, uh, Peter talked about True West at the American Airlines Theater. Michael and I got a chance to see it this week. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with True West? Yes. Uh, again, I'm a little late to the party and don't have really that much to say. I, I enjoyed seeing the play. I've always um, 
had, I guess, mixed feelings about it. It's a very odd piece, a very dark comedy. Uh, I saw the original, uh, I guess, well, I'm not sure if it would be called the original production. I saw it years ago off Broadway, but not with the original cast. I saw it with actually with Jim Belushi and Gary Cole, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it worked in a very small space. Then there was the famous production at Circle in the Square some years ago in which Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley alternated in the central roles of Lee and Austin. And I only saw one pairing. I saw uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Austin and John C. Riley as Lee. And I thought they were great in those roles. I would have liked to have seen the opposite just out of curiosity. Um, I thought that worked very well, too, at Circle in the Square. Uh, that that seemed like a very good space for it. Um, I think one of the major issues for the current production, as far as I'm concerned, the Roundabout Theater Company production at the American Airlines, is that it's the wrong type of theater uh, and too big for this kind of play where you really need um, – I think you really feel like you have to – you have to feel like you're right in the middle of the action and kind of a pressure cooker situation. They, um, I think they made an attempt to do that with a very odd, um, false. Well, I guess you would call it a false proscenium, but it was really like a, a frame, mm -hmm. uh, that they put around the action with a very low ceiling. And, uh, the frame was brightly, brightly, brightly lit, uh, you know, it was lighted from within, uh, only at scene changes, but but very brightly when whenever there was a scene change, and um, I I guess that's why they did it. I didn't think it really helped necessarily that much, uh, and I don't know what the point of the bright lights was. Uh, but other than that, I I thought it was a solid production. I think Ethan Hawke was quite fabulous as Lee. He's a very quirky performer. Uh, I, I did not necessarily enjoy him as Macbeth, um, nor in the coast of utopia because he, to me, he always has a very quirky, very American, uh, type of speech that doesn't work for lots of characters, but I thought it worked beautifully for, for this. And Paul Dano, who, uh, I've enjoyed in, immensely in, in several movies. Uh, it was really great to see him on stage, and I thought he was perfect casting for Austin. Um, uh, there, uh, let's see, uh, Gary Wilmis uh, in the fairly brief role of, uh, of, Aust of Lee, I'm sorry, Austin's agent, Saul. He was excellent, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I agree, <laughs> uh, although I understand why. I'm not sure I agree about uh, uh, Peter's view on this spoiler regarding the other person uh, in the cast, but I will I will maintain <laughs> a certain amount of mm -hmm. decorum just to, in deference to that. Uh, I think that it was odd that, um, but interesting that a, a British director, uh, James McDonald, was chosen for this very American piece. But I, you know, I thought he uh, he did a very good job with it. Uh, Again, my major issue was the space itself. And this is a uh, a very, very dark comedy. Oh, there, here's another issue. The lighting, I thought. Uh, lighting designed by Jane Cox. Um, the lighting didn't necessarily correspond to 
whether uh, certain sections of the play were supposed to be funny or not. Um, some, the lighting was very dim in some sections where I thought it was supposed to be quite funny and uh, very brightly, uh, brightly lit uh, in some parts where I thought it was supposed to be more serious. Uh, and I think the audience maybe was a little confused at certain points, but um it is a, it's a tricky piece uh, by Sam Shepard and obviously a cl- considered a classic by many people. So I'm glad that, uh, that it was done as a vehicle for these two actors. So I wanted to ask both of you, uh, do either one of you, uh, you know, I actually don't know this. Do you, either one of you have brothers? No. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't. Yes. Um, I have a lot of brothers. <laughs> I have six brothers. Oh my god! Uh, oh, I did not know that. And I, I, I didn't buy into this premise. Um, I felt that adult brothers know how to deal with each other and know the limits of each other and and uh, how to push each one of your buttons and things like this. Uh-huh. It seemed like there were surprises that I don't think either one of them should have been surprised about the other. Well, except James, that uh, isn't it established that Lee is supposed to have been like off on his own for quite some time. Five years for, but even at that, you know, I, I I have brothers that I haven't spoken to in five years and I still know exactly, you know, what's gonna set them off and what, and how to deal with them and how to put, you know, so, I would have rather these folks were strangers, but I mean, just the underlying property itself kind of bothered me. But certainly Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano just did wonderful jobs um, of this. It's interesting what you're saying, Michael, because um, in a smaller theater, I I, I might have had a different reaction mm-hmm. to this. And also, though, that 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 bright light framing thing that's been done by a, a few designs in the last couple of years. It makes me crazy yes, that yes. they blind us in the middle and it, it takes me, you know, 30 seconds to get back into the next scene after they blind us. No need uh, for it. I, I, yeah. I was trying to think if there was supposed to be some sim- symbolism or significance. You know, I, I sort of felt like that framing was like, we're watching the movie. It's the play within the play type of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, is it, the script that the uh, Ethan character, Ethan uh, Hawke's character sells, are we watching a script about him and his brother? And and so um, I understand it, but I think it's uh, it's abusive <laughs> by a design. It's unnecessary. Uh, uh, James, I think you you have the right to be the authority on this with the brothers. I think that's a very good point. Uh, for example. Um, Uh, A friend of mine uh, had been for two years taking care of a woman with Alzheimer's for two years. I mean, he was very devoted to her, went every day, all this kind of stuff. And anyway, he recently went to the Waverly Gallery and he says, ah, not like it at all. Nothing mm-hmm. like it. And <clears throat> I guess every case is different, to be fair. But nevertheless, you know, yeah, real experience trumps um, any of our assumptions any day. So um, so I, I bow to your uh, that. Six brothers. Are there sisters, too? Two sisters. There's nine of us total. God almighty. There's, <laughs> yeah. So seven boys oh. and two girls. And I tell, tell. I, I tell everybody I'm an only child. I, I, I'm the only one I, that matters. I, I <laughs> well, you know that 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 was Italian America, yeah, uh, in, in in back in the day, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So that's uh, that's True West and uh, playing at the Roundabout um, American Airlines Theater through March seventeenth. So uh, and when I went, um, not a seat to be had except for. Yeah. The two seats directly in front of me, they didn't show up. So we had a straight on. That happens. The place was packed, totally packed. And the two seats in front of us, they never came in. My wife and I were like, oh, they're going to come five minutes into the show and yep, it's going to yep, disrupt yep, us. And we're dead yep. center orchestra, yeah. you know, fifth row, sixth row. And but we had a straight on shot for the whole show. Well, of course, uh, then you also have to worry uh, in shows that are in two acts that somebody is going to move down from the balcony and take those seats. Uh, and you can't say to them, you don't belong there because which of us hasn't done the exact same thing when we were in the balcony? So uh, it's not fair to criticize people who take those seats. But yes, what a bonus it is when you have two seats in front of you. Uh, so when Dear Evan Hansen moved from second stage uh, to Broadway, mm-hmm. um, we had already seen it at second stage. And we were like, oh, this is a really good show. And I had, you know, my son is uh, now he's 15. So he was like 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we said uh, we scheduled our press tickets. And then after we scheduled our press tickets, we went online and bought two tickets for my son and his, and his, one of his friends to come see the show with us. And mm-hmm. and even though it hadn't opened yet on Broadway, it still had a big following and it was still sure. uh, press week and things like that. So it was relatively sold out. So we bought um, two seats in the mezzo or the balcony or something like that for mm-hmm. them to see. And during the first act, the two seats right in front of us, nobody showed. Um uh. And so we said to him, we said, come down here for the second act, uh, you know, and we went to the usher and said, yeah, if they they didn't show up, you can move them down. And they didn't show up. So the second act, they sat, you know, in the center orchestra for the second act of uh, Dear Evan Hansen, which was, again, a totally like. I think it was probably one of the two only empty seats in the entire house. So, uh, yeah, those things mm. do happen. It's interesting. I, I, I will give a tip, which is uh, slightly unethical, but um, <laughs> whenever I was in the uh, mezzanine balcony and saw seats down below, I would go up to the usher in the um, <clears throat> in the orchestra and say angrily, the person next to me smells so terrible. Do you mind if I sit? You know, and they, Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. So anyway, for those of you who uh, might need that information, um, I give it gladly. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, that's that, just a that's tip fine. that 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 does not work on an airplane. If you see two seats in first class, they're they're yeah, not going to yeah, move no. you up there. All right. So, uh, Peter, you got down to Theater Road, to the Acorn Theater, to see A Man for All Seasons. So tell us about this. Well, the most interesting thing about A Man for All Seasons, of course, is this was one of the few properties to win the Tony as Best Play and then an Oscar as um, Best Movie, uh, Best Picture. So uh, you know, this is a, a, a production, a, a play with a great pedigree, Robert Bolt, um, having had a tremendous success with this. And um, what is most 
uh, obvious about this is this is the type of play that would never get produced on Broadway today. First off, um, we have to realize that the original production was back in the very early 60s, and uh, the world was a different place then, and uh, there was more interest in uh, religious matters than there seemed to be today. So um, we're lucky to get a chance to see it, um, and I won't say that this is um, a, a tremendously good production, but I think it's a good one. Um and what's really nice is to see a play that is so intelligent. Now, the conflict is the fact that Henry VIII is very uh, upset that the Pope will not grant him a divorce, which he feels he's entitled to. And uh, so he's just going to take his marbles and go home and start his own religion. And he expects everybody to be a part of it, which is really quite the demand, isn't it? Um, it up until now, he and S Sir Thomas More have gotten along tremendously well. He admires him. He loves him. They're great friends friends and all that. But this is a situation where, indeed, Sir Thomas More is more loyal to Catholicism than he is, and God, by extension, of course, uh, than he is to his king. And uh, that's the whole conflict of the play. And Thomas really believes uh, that he's going to be all right, that he's going to have ways of getting around this, and uh, he will not um, have to suffer for it. Uh, that doesn't turn out to be quite true. And one of the things is, of course, he has to deal with his family as well, because his wife has a opinions on this. She'd just as soon have him uh, convert to the new religion rather than lose everything, which is what they're really in danger of doing. So um, so that's a big problem, needless to say. And of course, uh, con um, also uh, compounding it is the fact that uh, he has a daughter and um, she's um, very interested in uh, a, a man who um, has his opinions about what's going on too. So, a uh, lot of conflict in the play, and but the real strength of it is seeing how no matter what comes up, Thomas More has a really sharp answer for it, and that's really what makes this play soar. Um, if, if you like intelligent dramas, and it's, it's almost condescending of me to say if you like intelligent dramas, but I will say that, um, that's what the real strength of this play is. Um, Michael Countryman is very, very good as Sir Thomas More. Um, Trent Dawson is phenomenal as Henry VIII, but here's a warning. He's only in one scene. Um, then he lets everybody else do his dirty work. Um, John Arlene, um, an, an actor I very much admire, is uh, very good in two roles, one of which is Cardinal Wolsey. Um, so it is very effective. Now, if you have seen the movie, you are missing out on um, a very important character. And that character is known as the common man. Uh, they completely uh, obliterated this character for the movie. And he's a narrator of sorts, but he also, uh, because he's a common man, he shows up in various um, work-a-day, blue-collar type jobs throughout the show. And Harry Boovey, I think, I imagine that's how it's pronounced, B-O-U-V-Y, is very, very good in this role. And um, I think, um, so it, it, it is a show worth seeing. Um, it's long two hours and 30 minutes. It's one of the few shows that I think I've ever seen where the second act is longer than the first. I believe it actually is. Um, it's not that it seemed longer. I think it really is longer. So um, do have that caveat. Um, so it's going to be criticized tremendously for being all talk and no action. Yeah, guilty as charged. But um, if, if you like intelligent talk, here's the place to be. All right. So that is uh, also in the show notes, and we'll link to that, the Fellowship of the Forming Arts uh, website, and they have more information about that. Um, Michael, you saw Carmelina, so why don't you tell us about Carmelina? 
Yes, I uh, again late to the party. Uh, Carmelina musicals in Mufti presentation of a revised version of the show that I saw on Broadway originally with Georgia Brown, etc. Um, book by Joseph Stein and Alan J. Lerner, lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. Uh, this presentation, additional lyrics by Barry Harmon, and uh, most importantly, music by Burton Lane, one of his few uh, Broadway scores. Mm. But the but every one of them is just a winner as far as his contribution anyway. And uh, I wanted to – I actually uh, – again, this is a show I thought I might skip this presentation because I did see it originally uh, and I wasn't sure that I needed to see it again. But I was curious about the changes and also um, a big plus was that the central role of Carmelina was played by Andrea Burns, who's one of my all-time favorite performers. Uh, so I'm glad I went for her and uh, to experience the uh, the highlights of the show the the things about it that work i think um some of the changes were for the better and some were definitely for the worse uh there i don't know the show that well and i i do have the album but i i i didn't i made a point about not boning up on it before i went to the york production because again i i sometimes think it's better to go in as cold as you can and kind of take something as it's presented rather than um you know, uh, c being prepared to compare every little detail to a previous version. I, I think either approach is completely valid, but sometimes I like to do the uh, going in colder thing. So I didn't remember a lot of it, and uh, I was surprised during Act Two. Uh, there's this character of um, of Vittorio della Marta. Uh, played by Joey Sorge in this production. And he's kind of a uh, not very bright, uh, but, you know, very sweet guy who's in love with Carmelina and she won't give him the time of day because uh, she's just not interested. And uh, so he, he, you know, but he keeps trying to court her and she's just not interested. And um, all of these plot complications occur because the basic plot, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, is that Carmelina... Um, had uh, during World War II, she had had liaison, sexual liaison, with uh, three different American servicemen um, during a period of a few weeks. And so uh, she then became pregnant and is not sure which of those people was the father. And since she was not sure, she uh, – uh, some people would say scammed them or at least two of them uh, by telling – each one of them that they were the father and, and uh, demanding or asking for child support checks, uh, which she has been receiving for all of these years uh, from these three, <laughs> these three Americans who were there during the war. Um, now, one uh, very odd thing about this York production is that right there under the cast list, it says setting – Place a tiny restaurant in the village of San Ferino, uh, somewhere between Sorrento and Naples, and then it says time present day. Oh, so I don't know what. Oh, that, I <laughs> do not know. I guess maybe somebody just didn't notice that and forgot to change it to. Um, well, I guess it's supposed to be uh, night in the sixties, right? 
Well, the movie uh, Buona Sera, Mrs. Campbell, which is essentially the inspiration for this, um, is was a 1969 movie. Um, and uh, 10 years later, out came this musical. But yeah, what a good point. I mean, DNA now we have, you know, so I mean, uh, it really scuttles the whole thing. Oh, no, but not only that. I mean, they said uh, not only does it says the present day, but they still saying that these people were there. We're in the war. World war yeah, II. Gotcha, gotcha. So they would be like in their 90s. Yeah, know? right. <laughs> so I right. don't know. I, you know, I get let's let's. Let's just say that that was somebody forgetting to make that change in the yeah, yeah. program. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Andrea Burns was just as wonderful as I thought she would be. The cast was very strong all around. Uh, this wonderful guy. Uh, uh, well, I mentioned Joey Sorge as Vittorio, and he was quite great despite uh, – oh, did I finish my thought about the song? I'm sorry. I think I went off on, on a tangent. Yeah, no, but I, I, you I, did, I yeah. might have interrupted yeah. you. you know, yeah. So, I, yeah, well, he uh, – in Act 2 in this version, he sings a song uh, called I Will Kill Her in which he imagines killing Carmelina. Now, it's supposed to be comic, <laughs> but it just left such a horrible taste in my mouth. And I asked somebody about it afterwards, and they said, oh, well, that's not – that's a rewrite. And sure enough, it says, I will kill her asterisk. And at the bottom, it says lyrics by Alan J. Lerner and Barry Harmon. So I guess he uh, apparently in the original, it's not him imagining he's going to kill her. Uh, so that was a very, very unfortunate rewrite. And speaking of killing, you can hear the I think you can hear the <laughs> sirens outside my window right now. <laughs> so I apologize about that. Um, but anyway, uh some of the rewrites were, as I said, some seemed very good and some seemed very questionable. Also, uh, rewriting the show, I'll have to say rewriting it for a smaller cast, a much smaller cast in the original, did not seem to hurt. Uh, that included the uh, excision of at least one featured character in the original. There was one of, one of the uh, – one of the Americans' wives was in it, played by Virginia Martin, and she is not – in it anymore. Uh, I didn't think it hurt that much, to be honest, but other cuts and changes uh, were not so felicitous. Uh, uh, so I, who knows if this version will take uh, take hold anywhere and be produced elsewhere. Um, if, if it is, I hope they get uh, a cast as good as this one, Andrea Burns, Joey Sorge, uh, this wonderful guy named Antonio Cipriano, who played Roberto. Um, and the three guys were Evan Harrington, Timothy John Smith, and uh, uh, and Jim Stanek uh, as, the, as the three guys who were there during World War II and that now have come back for a reunion and are trying to, you know, kind of figure out what's <laughs> – what's going on here. Um, so that was Carla Molina at the York. Okay. So, uh, unfortunately it, uh, wraps up this afternoon. So if you're listening to this after February 3rd, you're going to be out of luck, but you might still have a few hours to get over to the York on Lexington Avenue and check it out. And they have two more shows coming up in their Alan J. Lerner Festival. One is Lolita, My Love, and the other one is The Day Before Spring, both extreme rarities. So I would think that people would want to try to get to see them, if only out of curiosity. At the risk of aggrandizing myself here, may I also say during the run of Lolita, My Love, on uh, March 2nd, uh, Josh Ellis and I will be doing a show at the York Theatre Company between performances, the matinee and evening performance of Lolita, My Love, because 
because what's going to happen is we are going to do a show called In Philly, Boston, and Baltimore. And what this is is the fact that uh, Josh grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Boston. <laughs> and uh, I was married in Baltimore and saw a lot of shows in Baltimore. So we're talking about all the out-of-town tryouts we saw in the days when they used to be out-of-town tryouts routinely. So um, if you're uh, in the neighborhood on March 2nd, I'm giving you enough time to plan, aren't I? Um, <clears throat> five o'clock, uh, we'll be at the York Theater Company between uh, Lolita and my loves, which, by the way, Josh saw in Philadelphia and I saw in Boston. <laughs> okay, I'm going to put that in the notes. Uh, we'll have a link to that as well. Um, Peter, you got over to uh, ART New York Theaters on West 53rd Street and 10th Avenue uh, to see the convent. I, uh, the convent, yes. So tell us about that. Yes, indeed. Um, this is a very different type of convent. It's not um, one that one would expect. And there's a marvelous little throwaway line that comes when all these women come on a retreat. And uh, there's the Mother Abbess there. And um, this is a paraphrase. Believe me, this is not a line from the show. But essentially, the mother says, all right, well, we're going to have um, lunch at 12. We're going to have um, a nap at uh, 2. We're going to have sex at 3. We're going to have um, games at 4. And it's a throwaway line um and you say wait wait did i hear that right did i hear that about sex and uh, there's no question that these aren't conventional nuns and uh, the mother abbess is certainly not a conventional woman so uh, i'm interested aren't you well uh the thing is jessica dickey has uh, uh, imposed upon this uh, a plot that's rather melodramatic and um, it's one of those plays where there's a big secret and if you don't figure out what the secret is, um, my heart bleeds for you because I would think that anybody could. So that's a big flaw of it too. Uh, the main reason to see this play is because of uh, two performances, which I think um, are really uh, terrific. Uh, Wendy Vanden Heuvel plays the Mother Abbess, and I think she's uh, really magnificent. Uh, even more terrific, though, is Samantha Soule, an actress I've admired many, many times. And um, she plays one of the people who's the most contentious there, who uh, has a, a lot of issues with Mother Abbess. And um, and watching those two uh, lock horns is really part of the uh, amazing uh, part of the play. It's um, done in a cockpit style, if you know what I mean, uh, like a football field. Um, there are people on each side of the uh, stage and the stage is in the middle. And um, very nice production, a very good production values, a lot of good projections as well. Um, I don't think it's a, a must-see, but um, I, I do feel that um, the oddity of, uh, of this situation certainly promised more than it delivered for me. Um, I would if somebody said to me, okay, how about a play in a convent that isn't a convent at all and sex is a big issue in it, uh, my mind would start racing in a way that um, that Jessica Dickey's apparently didn't. That might mean that I need to see a doctor, but uh, that's another story. So, um, uh, boy, uh, one of those premises that just didn't live up to what was um, promised in the first five minutes. Hmm. Okay, uh, next up. We have uh, Michael got a chance to see um, a wilderness at the Sheen Center. So tell us about that. Well, Peter was just referencing a, a man for all seasons as a long play. And here we have another one. Uh, the difference being that our wilderness is a comedy. Uh, the only always referred to as the only, well, the only full length comedy of Eugene O'Neill from his mature period. And uh, it, uh, frankly, I've always thought a little 
too long uh, for a comedy, uh, as is the case of uh, most of O'Neill's plays. Um, there's a lot of repetition in it that doesn't need to be there. Uh, but that said, the, a lot of it is also really very delightful. The, it's a kind of a very sweet, gentle humor uh, as befits the, you know, the time period, which is 1906. Uh, and it's set in a small town in Connecticut. And it's about a family. It's a domestic comedy. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a, often thought of as the um, the sort of opposite of Long Day's Journey into Night. Here we have a, a, a kind of depiction of O'Neill's family as he would have wished it was rather than as it actually was. Um, the uh, I've seen a few uh, – one or two previous productions of Our Wilderness. The best by far was one that was done – many years ago at Lincoln Center Theater with Sam Trammell in the central role of Richard Miller and a really great cast. Uh, Deborah Monk was in it and, and lots of other wonderful, uh, really wonderful people. Um, it's because it is so long. Uh, uh, I think it has to be done really perfectly to come across well. Uh, if there are even minor flaws in the production, um, it's going to maybe seem like a bit of a slog or it's going to fall flat in places. Uh, this production, I thought overall it was, it was well directed by Peter Dobbins and well cast, but there were lapses and there were times when it just really seemed like, uh, Oh gosh, this is just kind of going on and on. And it wasn't even the pacing that was off it so much. It, it just, there were little lapses like people stumbling on lines and maybe some people who were not perfectly cast. Uh, for example, um, this wonderful actor uh, who played Nat Miller, and his name is Ken Trammell, and he was really, really wonderful uh, in terms of type and uh, his acting ability. Uh, but he just – he well, honestly, he seemed about 20 years too old for the role, and that – just kind of didn't work very well uh, in terms of his interaction with the the rest of the family. Um, but again, uh, really, really good actor. So uh, I looked forward to seeing him in other roles. I think he um, has worked with this company in, in the past. This is the Blackfriars Repertory, Black Repertory Theater and the Storm Theater Company presentation at the Sheen Center. Um, Excellent, excellent casting of the central role of Richard Miller, uh, Peter Calvin Atkinson. He he did a just a stellar job in that very large role. Um, who is supposed to really sort of represent again an idealized version of the young Eugene O'Neill, and. Um, uh, Peter recently did his trivia about Jim Morgan uh, <laughs> being a character in a in a show. Here yeah, we have, yeah, <laughs> yes. Here, here, here we have uh, Richard's brother in this show is a character named Arthur Miller, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and played very well by Sean Cleary. Uh, so yeah, there there were some other really wonderful people in the, the in this cast. Uh, the one of the best of whom. Uh, only came on in the final scene or the penultimate scene, I guess. Uh, the, the relatively small role of Muriel McComber was beautifully played by Megan Mc, excuse, excuse me, Megan McDevitt, 
M-C-D-E-V-I-E-T. She just, first of all, was perfectly cast in terms of age and her beauty and her charm and her personality. And she came on and she was like a wonderful, wonderful breath of fresh air. And since uh, her scene is with... Richard Miller, played by Peter Calvin Atkinson, who was the other stellar standout in the cast. Um, that scene was really just superb. So um, I would say this was an inconsistent production of a difficult play, uh, but the Blackfriars repertory and the Storm Theater, they, you know, it's, it's, they, they should be proud of it because it, uh, you know, it was – certainly uh not perfect but but very admirable and it's a it's a show that uh is worth seeing again every every few years because of where it stands in the O'Neill canon and also um i i'm a little surprised that the musical version of it is never became more popular because i think it's a really good musical version of it take me along uh which i have gotten a chance to see in one or two productions but i think that uh musical actually solves um some of the uh problems of the play and and eliminates some of the longers of it uh i am curious as to um peter's thoughts on take me along i adore take me along i think it's a phenomenal score i listened to it not that long ago again for the umpteenth million time and i also believe that it has the best reprise of any (laughs) broadway musical uh, a song called staying young um if if you do nothing else i don't know if this is on spotify or what have you listen to the establishing song staying young and then listen to the reprise and see if you uh, disagree with me um, that this is a phenomenal phenomenal achievement Bob Merrill in only his second Broadway score um, I I like it more than any of his others a lot of people think Carnival is his best and that's fine too uh, no argument about how wonderful Carnival is but uh, mm. take me along to me is his supreme achievement Yes. Oh, speaking of that, um, I understand from Bruce Echo that uh, The Prince of Grand Street, uh, a late Bob Merrill musical for which he did book music and lyrics uh, and uh, went to Philadelphia and Boston. Uh, I, I, maybe Josh and I will be talking about that one, too, um, is coming out on record. So um, uh, that's something to look forward to because it is a nice score. It really is. Whatever the problems with the show. And there were. Um, it's a very nice score. But, yeah, Take Me Along, terrific score. Um, I'm sure it's available on Masterworks Broadway, and I urge you to get it. All right. So uh, just a follow-up for last week's um, broadcast. We talked a little bit about playbills. uh, And, Michael, you have a quick follow-up from our friend Ron Fassler. Yeah, we discussed the New York Times article about the elimination of uh, printed programs uh, for some shows off Broadway, I would say mostly, and and other places, not on Broadway yet, but uh, and hopefully never. Um, so we discussed that article, and uh, Ron Fassler, who's one of our listeners as well as a published author himself, wrote me a note um, 
I, I had seen him at uh, the uh, Lyrics and Lyricists uh, uh, Rogers and Hart event. So he wrote me a note saying, after seeing you Sunday night at the Y, then listening to you on the podcast, discussing the habit of a program being handed out after a show, prompted me to write you. Sunday afternoon, I was at the matinee of Carmelina at the York, and people were having attacks of apoplexy mm. when they were told there were no programs. At first, I thought this was the start of a new policy there, but as it turned out, there was a problem with their printer. You wouldn't have believed how angry and vocal the mostly elderly patrons were about this. So what do you think happened? The curtain was held until they went across the street to King. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, Josh Ellis is coming up a lot today, but anyway, when the company reunion concert happened in California, he was living in California then, and he said it was so amazing that um, they ran out of programs, and um, uh, to the point where they, they had a few, so they said to every couple coming in, um, listen, we can only give you one. He said it was so amazing to see the straight couples say, oh, okay, and the gay <laughs> couples say, what are you talking about one program? <laughs> and it was like the ushers had to make the de- this is his words exactly uh the ushers had to make the decision on who to give the program to it was like sophie's choice you know <laughs> so- <laughs> oh, my god. oh my god that's funny have either one of you ever heard about uh a couple going through a breakup and having to fight over which cast recordings each one of them get to keep you know in these days of digital it's much easier but... <laughs> you know, I, I do know a couple that had that problem. And um, and as I understand it, um, she was just being vindictive. Uh, well, this is the husband's story. I never met the yeah. wife that um, she just wanted to do that to to punish him. I have to say, in my divorce, my wife was very gracious about that. And my wife adored show music. She really did. It was her music as well. And um, she was very gracious about, no, 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 I can't take these from you. I mean, you know, so, so credit to uh, my ex. Have either one of you added uh, Skittles the musical to your collection? It came out this week. The one did uh, it? Yeah, it, it came out uh, earlier this week. It's got one performance only this afternoon on Sunday afternoon, before one quote unquote the big game, uh, where Michael C. Hall is going to lead a production at the town hall uh, for a thirty-minute musical that's going to air in some sort of thirty-second advertisement uh on the super bowl this evening so uh either one of you heading down to town hall to see this no i'm going to trials of the catonsville nine um and uh, then i'm going to my own show at night i'm even going to miss some of the super bowl which pains me because of course i'm from new england and uh i am rooting for the patriots so now i'm afraid skittles has to go on without me what about you michael are you going to skittles no no i i just hadn't uh tried to I mean, I hadn't made arrangements for it, so I guess I understand it's a big hit. Hard ticket to get. Yeah, hard ticket to get, and they do they do not care that you're a member of the media. It's it's bigger than that. Is it really? I will say this: that even though I'm a candy holic, as anybody who's ever seen me knows that I hate Skittles. Anyway, yeah, me too, actually. All right. Uh, and before we get on to trivia, um, last uh, last couple of weeks, uh, we've had two major passings. Uh, Carol Channing passed away and Kay Ballard passed away. And uh, at the top of the show, you might have noticed that uh, we played some music uh, and we'll end the show as well with tributes to these women. Uh, any words, uh, Michael? 
Yeah, I just I I'm sorry that you know we we've had so many shows to discuss lately. The the, the spring season is really in full bloom, and uh, I guess we just uh, neglected to commemorate their passing. So just wanted to mention two great artists, Carol Channing and Kay Ballard. I think. Um, both of them, uh, for different reasons, uh, their careers were somewhat limited. Uh, Carol Channing had her voice, her voice, her singing voice, and her speaking voice were so unique um, that I think that did a lot to limit the type of roles she would play. And also, uh, in her case, uh, on a happy note, she became so so completely identified with the role of Dolly Levi and kept playing it in, in revivals that, uh, that didn't leave her time to do other things. So, um, she was somewhat limited in that respect, but still, um, obviously made her mark in that and in gentlemen prefer blondes and in Lorelei and in the film of thoroughly modern Millie and, you know, several other projects that I'm sure our listeners know her for, uh, Kay Ballard had a much more, um, uh, traditional, uh, well, less unique voice. She had a really great singing voice, uh, which she uh, used in in her Broadway shows, uh, the the Golden Apple, in which she introduced the beautiful song "Lazy Afternoon," and in the aforementioned Carnival, and uh, in other shows that were not hits. Um, Unfortunately, but also I think, uh, to be honest, and several people have commented on it in in the wake of her passing, she could be a very difficult woman. And I think she got um, I think she became a little bitter over the years uh, because she did not have the level of success that her talent uh, should have given her. So that is regrettable. But yet again, she she still did a lot. She did the things I mentioned. She was in the TV uh, sitcom The Mothers-in-Law, which even though it only ran two seasons, kind of gave her a, a, a level of immortality. And she was also uh, one of the stepsisters in what at the time was the most watched television program in in history, uh, and still uh, ranks as as one of the most. Uh, the original telecast of Cinderella, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cinderella with Julie Andrews, and uh, Alice Ghostly as the other stepsister. That uh, that's a really great uh, project that Kay did get to do. So uh, I thought we would commemorate those two artists with. Um, I thought we would. Uh, include So Long Deary from Hello Dolly mm. rather than maybe one of the more mm-hmm. <laughs> more famous songs. And uh, for Kay, I think I think it's okay if we just go with Lazy Afternoon because she introduced it and it's such a beautiful, beautiful rendition. All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that before you, uh, if you subscribe to these broadcasts, uh, every time we get an episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to sub- subscribe in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you listen to finer podcasts, you can get This Week on Broadway. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, I, um, <laughs> I, I was abused, but after I gave it, you said, uh, I'll have to diagram that sentence because <laughs> it really was uh, convoluted. But anyway, a person will call performer number one, received a Tony in a show that won a Best Musical Tony too. When performer number one left that show, a person will call performer number two, took over. 
someone who by then had also won a Tony. Now, performer number one eventually did a movie musical and performed a song whose title just happens to be the same as the name of the first Broadway show performer number two did. Who are the performers in the musicals? Well, the only one to get this was Tony Janicki, and uh, my hat is off to him for uh, figuring really? this out. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This this week's is going to be just as difficult, you know, it, sounding, but it really isn't. Anyway, here's the answer. Angela Lansbury won the Tony for portraying Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, which won the best musical Tony in 79. Dorothy Loudon, a previous Tony winner for her portrayal of Miss Hannigan and Nanny, replaced Lansbury. And um, then uh, Lansbury is now can now be heard singing a song called Nowhere to Go But Up in Mary Poppins Returns. And in 1962, Loudon's first Broadway show was the ninth performance musical, Nowhere to Go But Up. So that's the answer. All right. This week's, believe me, this sounds harder than it is, and I have a feeling we're going to get a lot of correct answers on this one. Here we go. Soon after he won a Tony for appearing in a Tony-winning musical, he went on to star in a very successful TV series that bore his name. Ten years after he picked up his award, a musical opened that had the first name of the show's male supporting character and the first name of its female supporting character. For that matter, the female supporting character's last name was the maiden name of the leading female character in the musical. Who's the Tony winner? What's the name of his TV show? What are the names of all these characters that showed up (laughs) what musical really it's easier than you think if we all want to break down into little discussion groups and uh start puzzling this piece together uh we can email us at triviabroadwayradio.com and we'll uh see if we can get everybody together to think this through so if you have an answer email uh us and let us know so on behalf of peter felicia and michael portantier this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway videos this week on broadway Bye-bye. Bye. Don't you come a-knocking on my door Cause I'll be all dolled up And singing that song that says you dog I told you so So wave your little hand and whisper so long Dearie, dearie should have said so long, so long ago Because you treated me so rotten and rough I've had enough of feeling low So wave your little hand and whisper so long Dearie, dearie should have said so long, so long ago For I can hear that choo-choo Calling me on to a fancy new address Yes, I can hear that choo-choo Calling me on on board that happiness express I'm gonna learn to dance and drink and smoke a cigarette I'm going as far away from Yonkers as a girl can get And on those cold winter nights, Horace You can snuggle up to your cash register It's a little lumpy, but it rings Don't come a-knocking, I'll be all dolled up And singing 
song that says you're dog. I told you so. So Harris, you will find your life a sad old story when you see your dolly shuffle off to glory. Oh, I should have said so. <laughs> 